Welcome to On the Continent, your one-stop shop for all things European football. I'm Dotton Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Nikki Bandini. On today's podcast, the Battle of Turin. If the shroud fits Juventus, they have to wear it, but not without an epic fight for Champions League survival. Also, after doing what they had to do against Barca at something of a canter, what more do PSG have to do to convince the sceptics that this time around they're the real deal, like Holyfield, and with two of the kings of Europe out before the quarterfinals, why reform the Champions League? It ain't broke, is it? So, let's talk about the Battle of Turin, as no doubt it'll be known for at least a week. Uh, Nicky, Juventus, eh? Juventus. They played a classy game. They played a real, real, you know, a stonker of a game. But they came out with absolutely zilch at the end of it. Talk us through it. Yeah, I, I've been trying to piece this back together a little bit in my own head, actually, because... I thought the same thing that you just said. I thought they played well on the night and you lose it over a tie because I thought Juventus were the better team this week, but they were so bad in the first leg. They were actually lucky to be only one goal down. But then when I really stopped and thought about it, I thought, were they really better for the whole game uh, on Tuesday? Or was it a pretty unimpressive first half from Juventus? And then this momentum that built once Federico Chiesa woke them up, once that red card comes in, once the game tilted in a particular direction, it certainly was a really compelling spectacle, which had, it was a journey, wasn't it really? I mean, when Porto scored first, you think, well, that's it, this tie is is, is done already. Then the Chiesa moment happens and not just... Um, bringing them back into it. But the goal he so nearly scored where he's through on goal and he just can't quite get the angle right to to force it in. And then there's other chances for Juventus as well. Um, it was it was high drama to the end of 90 minutes. And then we had almost like a, a pause for breath at the beginning of extra time. And then Porto score again. And you think, well, now it really is done. This crazy goal under the wall and all of the conversations that are going to happen about that, which you can already feel coming. Did Ronaldo jump when he didn't need to? Should someone be lying down? And then even after that, we still have one more twist with um, Rabiot scoring and and the game is blown open and suddenly you think, could this still have a different ending? So it was a, it was such a journey that I think even two days later, I'm still slightly picking through how I felt about the team's played. That's it, isn't it, Nikki? It didn't have a beginning, a middle and an end. It had a chorus, a bridge, a middle eight, <laughs> maybe two bridges. It, it, the, the whole lot, it, it, was, it, was, it was amazing. Take um, it to the bridge, Andy. Take it to the bridge. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I think I, I look at that, that first half and it's, it's quite difficult to get over. And I think when Juventus are judged, once the dust has settled, that first half, as well as the first leg, will really come into it. Because I think the fact that Marchesin made a couple of very good saves in the first half can kind of gloss over the fact that Porto had all the best chances. And Juventus seemed a little bit taken aback that Porto would play on the front foot like that, that Porto would dare to play on the front foot like that, which was a, a little surprising. And then they kind of worked themselves back into that complacency after the red card because 
when the red card happens and when Chiesa gets the second goal, Porto are sitting ducks. It's a matter of time. Juventus are just going to run them over like they've run over so many teams in the last eight or nine years with their superior physical power in the last 20 minutes of the game. But it doesn't happen. And I can kind of make allowances for Juventus not coming into extra time so strongly because, Nicky, you, I and Dotton were talking about the value of the away goal um, before we came on. And the value of the away goal, before it actually happens in, in, in this game, in extra time, is the fact that it's in Juventus' head, I, I think, at the start of that second half, because they can't be that, that first half of extra time, sorry, because they feel they can't be too aggressive. Because if they expose themselves and they concede a goal, then all of a sudden they've got to go and score too. So I can understand yeah, that sort of reticence. I, I find that psychology really interesting. Sorry, I didn't mean to butt in. Um, no, go. I, I just, I find that psychology really interesting because I agree with you that it felt like at the start of extra time, Juventus had this very sort of conscious moment of, we can't be idiots now. Mm. But it didn't feel like that in the last moments of normal time when conceding would have been even more catastrophic because you would have had no time to fix it. So it did, it felt to me like Juventus were really pushing to win it in 90 minutes. Like they really didn't want to go to extra time. They were trying to get it across the line. Mm. And then whether it was that pause lets your nerves set in for a little bit, lets you think, oh, hang on, we can blow this from here. I don't know, but it, it felt like Again, when we talk about the ebb and flow of this game, there was a a shift once we'd reached 90 minutes in the way that the two teams were psychologically set up, even though the game situation didn't immediately change in the 90th minute. Uh, I think the the, the other side of that, the, the thing that you can understand them being taken aback with is Sergio Concisal's side, are they're so physically strong they've got so much in the tank i mean they they played over an hour with 10 men against a team that you think of as being one of the fittest in europe um that that to me is pretty remarkable and now they have played quite um aggressive sort of football in the champions league and you know they haven't got it's not the most gifted porto team ever you know i think if you look at that team on paper you think okay where's your hammers where's your Hulk, where's your Moutinho, where's your Falcao? There were no players really of quite that class, you know, give or take 38-year-old Pepe, who was, who was magnificent, of course. Um, but I think it's, it's understandable that that happens. I mean, I, I want to come on to Chiesa and what it means for Juventus in um, a minute, but I've I've wondered for a while, Nicky, if we could see Sergio Concisao with his history in the Italian game end up in Serie A. I felt for a while that he's a fantastic coach who's really made miracles happen there considering he's just had to, he's had his budget cut the whole time. He's won two titles in three years against more moneyed rivals and he's, he's got them into the Champions League knockouts as well, which all is absolutely crucial for the club money-wise. And that sort of football, I, I can really see him coaching in Serie A and doing a good job. Yeah, that's a really interesting um, thought. I I think Italian football, I was just even thinking as I say this, though, maybe this is just lots of countries because I think it's true. Well, is it? I don't know. I'm now 
broadening out the question too much in my mind and, and confusing myself with it. I think Italian football can be quite close to outside managers. I think there is definitely a perception in Italy that this is the thing we're the best at, right? We've got Coverciano, we make managers, mm. it's the thing we do well. But then you only have to look at Roma and, and taking the, the gamble on Paolo Fonseca. Now, look, the jury is out on Fonseca after a, a year and a half. I think there's things that have been really successful and things that haven't. But there are clubs that would take that gamble. And I, I do think Concisau has to be reaching that point in his profile where clubs beyond Portugal um, without wanting to do down the option of playing in Portugal, because look, Porto just knocked out Juventus, but Obviously, there are bigger uh, leagues financially. There are bigger opportunities in in some of these um, other countries. And I think people should be paying attention to him because, yes, I think he's, I mean, you know better than I do the job he's doing. But this was a really, really hugely impressive European performance. As a neutral, I'm still sitting here with a smile on my face because this is one of the most exciting games that I've seen in the Champions League or even in domestic leagues partly or mostly because of the jeopardy. There was a certain amount of jeopardy throughout the game. And like you've described it as a drama, but the drama was happening on the pitch as well. When the sending off happens, you think to yourself, well, that's it, it's all over. But no, it's not. (laughs) They think it's all over, but it's not. And it's got a long way to go. And it was one of the times where... When it went into extra time, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is, I want more. I don't want this to end. <laughs> and in fact, if it had gone on for another half an hour, who knows how it would have ended. But we know that the drama would have continued. Um, I wonder whether it's because of the players on the pitch or whether it's because of the tactics of the coaches. That's a, that's a great question. I mean, from Juventus' point of view, it's interesting. I was listening to Andy talk about you think of Juventus having this physicality that carries them across the line. I don't think they do anymore. And I think that's part of the the many layered problem that Juventus are facing up to now. I think certainly when you contrast them to the team that is top of Serie A right now, Inter, it's a no contest in physicality between those two teams. Conte's Inter is Juventus when Conte was manager. They're the ones going out there and and and, stamp- and stamping on you and and not letting you get back up. That's that's their identity. Juventus have have lost that um that physicality in midfield. I don't know if it's as simple as that you can bring it down to individuals, but certainly there's no more Kadira, there's no more Matuidi, there's no more of that veteran um in position in midfield. And and I think that very often when you talk about physical teams, that's the part of the pitch that you look at. Maybe you might have looked as well at defence, but look, Chiellini was injured and is there watching from the sideline and not taking it well, by the way, but that's its own separate story. Um, I think Juventus are a team, and this brings us on to the topic that I know that everyone is talking about a bit after this game, including, by the way, all of Italy, um, certainly journalistically speaking, which is um, the Ronaldo situation, where we're up to with this idea that was had to bring in the world's greatest player, at least in Juventus' opinion, and and try to win the Champions League. Juventus, for me, are a team trapped between the identity that they want to have in the future and the idea that they wanted to have right now. I've said this over and over again this week, when they signed Ronaldo, it was not sort of implicit that they were trying to win the Champions League. That was said out loud by directors, by the then manager Allegri. It was said 
in public, almost like a confession. We've been sort of dancing around this the last few years because we keep winning Serie A and everyone asks, are you going to win the Champions League? Our goal is to win the Champions League now. Look, look what we're doing. And that was the team they were trying to build, a team with Ronaldo that goes to win the Champions League. And what they're also now trying to do this season is to build a young, dynamic future, which I think people got a glimpse of with Chiesa's performance. And what's so confounding about this moment is that days earlier on Saturday, Juventus produced one of their best performances in weeks against Lazio with Ronaldo not on the pitch. And was that team, to sort of get back to where we came in on this, was that team a physical team that beat Lazio? Look, it had some youthful energy to it. I think it wants to be a high-pressing team under Andrea Pirlo, but it's it's still, I don't know, physicality is what I would call its defining trait. It wants to be a fast team. It wants to be a, a, a quick breaking team. It wants to be a team that exploits those spaces. And yeah, unfortunately, that is not what Ronaldo offers you at this point of his career. And that is a really complicated conundrum now that the club is facing up to. It, it really is. And I think the way that Ronaldo is viewed in Portugal now is, is is very interesting because having followed um, the Portuguese national team for a, a, a number of um, major championships, um, the discourse around him has, has evolved slightly. So he, he was always, um, God, you know, you can't criticise him. You can't touch him. Any question that even lightly brushes Ronaldo with the national team starts with the phrase, or Cristiano El Milio do Mundo. Cristiano's the best in the world. Even if it's like not really related to him, because it's almost as if it's something that's learned because um, he's he's your, your siren, uh, your muse, your leader in every way, and there can't be any criticism of him. Now, there's still no real criticism of him, but there's an evolution in the sense that when they talk about the national team, it's not Cristiano plus 10. There's an appreciation that there are other players who can lead now, which is enormous psychological sidestep or step forward. It's a step anyway for, for, for Portuguese football to, to, to look at it like that. I mean, there's been an understanding for, for ages that Cristiano needs to be fed. And to my mind, he, he wasn't particularly fed, perhaps because of this slight identity clash in Juventus. But I felt in either of these games, he, he wasn't fed. Now, clearly, that is the main job of Morata because Morata is kind of his, I guess, his, his nouveau Benzema, really. Someone with the awareness, with the wide palette to lay on chances for him. But, Nicky, if the real click now, as we saw in that Lazio game is between um, Morata and Chiesa, where does that leave Cristiano Ronaldo? And also, if we're talking about how the club are going to regenerate, how they're going to get his wages off the slate so they can really rebuild that midfield in a meaningful way as they've needed to for years, how do you get rid of him in this in this market? Yeah, and that's, um, I was going to say the 100 million question. It might be pretty much that amount of money that Juventus effectively account for. He's got one year left on his contract. So far, I think um, Gazzetta's 
uh, number they put on it uh, on uh, Wednesday was 340 something million that he's cost them, I guess, between um, transfer fee and then wages and all the other associated elements of it. And they, and the problem is, of course, they do mix up two different threads in this because the number that they've put on how much it cost them to keep him for the last season was around 80 million. Now that includes his wages, but also amortization. So that's, um, we're getting a bit too far into the the reads of, of the finances here, but that's basically how the players cost that you spent on him up front depreciates over the time that you, that you have him. So if you can get rid of him a year earlier, you can um, take that out of the money that you lost in effect for having him. But either way, even if you just strip it back to his wages, it's a huge uh, salary he's on. It's the biggest in Serie A. And you're right, he's 37 years old. He's not an easy player to move on anymore. And to be um, clear on this, Juventus have not said, at least out loud to anyone, that um, they're looking to sell him, to move him on. In fact, the conversation that has been reported much more in Italy is, is Ronaldo looking around at 37 and going, this isn't what I was promised. This isn't the team that was supposed to go to the Champions League final with me and I need to get out while I still can at 37 if I want to go and win somewhere else. So it's a complicated relationship right now. And look, it has to be said over and over, Ronaldo is said he has a leading scorer right now. Ronaldo is scoring goals. I do think um, there's something in the fact First of all, to sort of paint the picture that I um, I guess we've omitted so far, but which is important, Juventus had gone in the four seasons before he arrived, two finals, a quarterfinal and the last 16. Since he's arrived, he's been one quarterfinal, two last 16s. All the teams they've lost to have been teams who Juventus would like to imagine themselves as bigger than uh, Ajax, Leon, and now Porto. Um, but the the thing which struck me was in the last two seasons, yes, they went out early, but I felt like Ronaldo's individual individual contribution could not be questioned, even as they were going out. He was scoring in those games. So you looked at the rest of the team and said, he's done his bit. This game, and you might be right, Andy, maybe they didn't do enough to put him in those positions, but this game, with it all on the line, I think... A lot of people were waiting and waiting all the way to the end for Ronaldo to do the thing, for Ronaldo to have that moment. And it never came. And you talked about a conversation shift in Portugal. I thought that some of the reporting that happened in Italy after this game was striking in its change in tone. Perhaps the most clear example, the front page of Corriere della Sport was just... um, Tradito, which is betrayed with a picture of Ronaldo. So, you know, he let us down, basically. That is harsh, not least because he did contribute a rather elegant um, uh, assist in this game. It, It wasn't like he didn't have any impact whatsoever. But nevertheless, if Nicky's argument is the one to follow on this, uh, Andy, I, I wonder whether, again, you have to look at the coach or you have to look at the player. We know how old Ronaldo is. We know the limitations of a player of his magnitude. But we also know that he's still got it. He hasn't lost his mojo. You mentioned Murata earlier on. And I don't want to shift 
the problem from one player to another, but you have to question the coach. If Murata is not laying it on the line for Ronaldo, for him to be able to contribute in the way that he would need to contribute um, for the team to be built around him, then you have to look at the coach, which is Pirlo. Some, if somebody's got to take the blame, is it not the coach? I think it's, it's really interesting. All the questions we're posing to each other around this game, I feel like a lot of them come down to age. And for, for me, the coaching over both the legs partly comes down to a question of age because you look at Pirlo's um, relative um, lack of experience as, as, as a top coach. And now who's to say the coach that he will become? You know, maybe he's got some amazing ideas. He's clearly got some interesting ideas, but maybe he's got some amazing ideas. Maybe he can mould the future of, of Juventus. But I felt, and not just in the demeanour, I think we can read some too much into the expressions and body language of, of coaches on the touchline. But um, I think uh, Kate Mason was saying on um, uh, the, the, the ramble earlier this week that Pirlo looked like a little boy with a beard on which I, I thought was I thought was quite interesting because for, for me, the expression, he looked perennially like, like worried and as, as, it, as if there was a moment of impending doom. Whereas conscious out, of course, he's a force of nature. He's an alpha. But the way that the games unfolded, the way that both of the games unfolded, to me, so much of it, Nicky, came down to inexperienced coach, versus experienced coach, a coach who's still working it out. And sometimes we assume because of what he was as a player that he should arrive in coaching as the, the finished article. Um, that's certainly the feeling from people who view Pillow more casually, maybe. Whereas Concisau has been working on his craft for a long time now, and we know exactly what sort of coach he is. And just before you answer that, Nicky, I wonder if we can just th mention the body language that Andy talks about there. It was actually after the match, the way that uh, Pirlo went to address the referee about whatever, you know, a referee that sent a man off for the from the opposition yeah. Yeah. on his behalf. Why are you questioning the that just confounded me? I haven't. Um, I don't think it. I don't want to present this like an excuse because I don't think it was. I thought the the penalty at the beginning could certainly have gone the other way. So the only thing that um, that I could imagine he'd be upset about would be that decision. Um, but look, I have I I'm in the camp that has a certain degree of sympathy for Pedro because I agree with everything Andy has just said, and I think looking back with two years of distance and. Frankly, I was a little bit banging this drum even at the time. What? Why were people so convinced that Max Allegri wasn't doing a good job at Juventus? I think Max Allegri in charge of this game produces a very, very different outcome because he is an intelligent tactician who knows to get the most out of what he has. Pirlo does not have that experience, has made all sorts of mistakes this season. And I think you've highlighted some of them really well that he made in this game in terms of underestimating the opposition. Having said that, the problem, the mistake to me goes much higher up the ladder. It goes to the decision to hire Pirlo in the first place. It goes to the decision to build this hybrid team where you're trying to look to the future, but you also haven't done enough to support the present where even the 
good signings that you've made, like Chiesa, who for me is blown my socks off this season. He has gone so far beyond what I thought he could contribute this season. It still doesn't make up for the fact that you have done the worst, most chaotic attempt to build that midfield that I could imagine. You have pieces that don't fit together. You have absolutely no one other than Arta, who's been injured half the time. And by the way, has always in his career had this habit of missing a lot of games. You have no one else who looks like they can stand in midfield, put their foot on the ball and distribute. You've got no one who's filled that gap left by Matuidi as someone who's got the real engine and and drive to, to take the ball up and down. You've got no coherence in the middle of the park. Again, I think if Allegri is in charge he will find a better recipe than what Pirlo has. But that doesn't mean that it's all on his shoulders. I think the team building has, frankly, since Ronaldo was signed, been totally haphazard. Of course, there is another, uh, perhaps former king of European football to discuss. I think it's fair to say that Messi and his Barcelona had a a greater mountain to climb after the first leg against PSG uh, than Ronaldo and Juventus had to climb. And there was a belief that they could do it because they'd done it before. They'd done it before. They turned over a deficit of, you know, 4-1 that, of that magnitude before and progressed into the Champions League. This time, though, I, were you expecting them to turn it around, Andy? Uh, no, I wasn't. Um, but also I wasn't expecting the game to unfold the way it did, Don. And um, you talked about um, La Remontada from 2017 being in... Uh, the minds of Barcelona, I think it was in the minds of Paris Saint-Germain and, and the people around the club a lot more. And, and not just within the club, um, but, but everyone who follows the club, I think. It was interesting, I thought, um, when they were dissecting the performance in the French newspapers and um, in media today, there was uh, this thing in Le Keep that was saying after his difficult first half, how uh, Levin Kozawa was was taken off. Of course, he he made the the foul, the really rash challenge that led to the penalty that Messi couldn't put away, which again could have really changed the the the, the feel of the night because Pochettino was saying afterwards how look we, we corrected a lot of stuff at halftime, and the, the fact that Kalo Navas got them into halftime at one one, I think, is absolutely huge. But it was interesting the way it was written about um, in the keep about uh, how Kazawa had had a difficult uh, half, so they took him off, and that also meant there was one less player on the pitch who'd been there in the six-one at Camp Nou, and that to me seemed an extraordinary thing to say because Verratti was still there, Draxler was the, still there, Marquinhos was still there, but the idea I think that this still lives in Paris Saint-Germain's heads is, is really interesting, even with a very different team uh, lining up that night from the one that did four, four years ago at Camp Nou and gave 
really one of the most underwhelming performances in a European knockout tie that I can remember from um, uh, a really top team or a team with aspirations to, to win the Champions League. I mean, I remember looking at Paris Saint-Germain in this first half. Barcelona were very good. I thought they, they, they pressed very well. They were full of purpose. You could argue it's easy to have that purpose because there's only one way to play when you're 4-1 down and that's throwing absolutely everything at it. It's like Ricky Ponting batting all day at Old Trafford in 2005. But I thought of all their second legs in knockout phases where they've, they've come up short. The first half was one of Paris Saint-Germain's worst performances. I, I thought it was lacking in intensity, lacking in composure. And whereas, say, if you look at them being knocked out by Manchester United the season before last at the Parc des Princes, you know, they, you kind of felt they stumbled into United's hands a little a bit just through their own, um, I think, assumption that they were going through already. Whereas with this, they played Barcelona like they were playing 2017 or 2015 or 2011 Barcelona. They were, they looked terrified. They really looked terrified. Uh, Nicky, having said all of that, um, and and the most interesting part of it was the way that Barcelona started off, like Andy says, they started off with such an intensity. They realised they need to score a lot of goals. Where did everything fall off? Because it seemed, I mean, especially after Messi's wonder goal in this, it looks like, whoa, they could, they could do it. As much as Andy says that he didn't believe they could turn it around, I think people who knew the trajectory of um, Barcelona turning a, a huge deficit around in the Champions League thought, hang on, they could do it. And yet it just seemed to fall apart at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think there's got to be layers and and layers that go into this. I do feel like there have been a few, not only with uh, PSG, there's been a few quite wild um, Champions League comebacks in the last few seasons. So I think that at the very least, any footballer has been slightly disabused of this notion that winning comfortably in the first leg means that everything's a done deal. And when you see Messi almost reinforce it by scoring a goal like that to start it off. I'm sure it must be quite easy to let that tiny little grain of doubt in your mind show up because you know you're dealing with someone who sometimes, no matter what you do, they're just going to do their thing anyway. When you're playing someone that good, you can sort of feel powerless, I imagine. Um, I think all of us who've played even amateur sport must know that feeling of realising you're sharing a pitch or a court or whatever sport you play with someone who's just manifestly able to do things that you can't. And so you think, well, there's not a lot I can do if this um, um, this phenom starts to do things that that are like this. And and that has to be for a professional footballer, for someone who isn't a terrible amateur sports person. Um, to, it must be quite a, a, um, a threatening feeling because most of your life and career, you do feel able to control things, to do things. And then you realise you're up against someone who maybe you can't. The manner of the goal, I think, plays into that, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. That, that sense that, um, as as you say, um, Kaylon Navas, who... 
Um, as, as I said on the Rambler, he got nine out of ten in Le Keep. That is not easy to get nine out of ten in the heart the hardest marking newspaper in European football and perhaps in sport in general. Um, but th- there was nothing he was he was he was doing about that. I mean, he, he hammered it like Hulk or Jurgen Alberts or some something like that, didn't he? It was it was it was incredible. On the back of that, it seemed almost inevitable that he was going to miss the penalty as as as, as well. But I do wonder, going forward um, for um, Barcelona, Don, I mean, clearly this season in the Champions League has been a global disappointment. But if you're looking to build a route to a future, if you're Leo Messi, well, of course, there's no Bartomeu as president anymore. It's Joan Laporta who... Messi got on well with and is associated with a far more successful era of, of Barcelona because, of course, he was re-elected president last Sunday. Um, and he's already been glad-handing with the returning Pau Gasol. So he's, you know, obviously, media-wise, he's far more savvy than any other recent Barcelona president or candidate. So that's a good feeling. Then you've got the fact that these doors are shutting because may, it's clear that Paris won't be able to take him if, as they believe they're close to doing, they re-sign Mbappe and Neymar. They they can't get Messi on the wage bill as well. So those landing spots for Messi are diminishing. And then you want to believe that there's a future on the pitch as well. Now, in the short term, whether Laporta keeps Ronald Koeman, I, I think he's very much open to question. I would still are on the side of, of, of probably not. But what Barcelona have developed in 2021 is at least some sort of plan of... I mean, it's something that Paris might have to do if they're paying so much in wages to Mbappe and Neymar. The idea of get your star, surround them with talented young guys who cost less and can do all of the running for him. And I think that when you look at not so much Griezmann and Dembélé because... A, they're a symbol of another era of Barcelona. And I think you could argue that their selections didn't really come off. I mean, clearly Dembélé had the chances to really get them back in that time and didn't take them. But when you look at Pedri, Serginho Dest, you know, players who are, are making an enormous impact. Elias is one of those as well, although he didn't play because they wanted to go with an extra attacking player in this quite understandably. In recent weeks and in this game, there's a sense that, you know, some people watch this and thought, oh, this is this is proper Barcelona. They're back. What's all the fuss about? Well, there's still a lot to sort out. And I don't think off the back of one performance or several weeks of, of, of promising performances, we should say that Barcelona are a contender again, going into next season's Champions League and next season's La Liga. But it does feel that if you're messy, I think there's at least a sense that yeah, okay, there's this something I can work with here. Rather than where he was feeling when he did that interview with Ruben Uria at the start of the season where he said, well, I'm staying, but there's nothing here, really. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's depressing. You, you know, it was, it, was, it was like a Morrissey song. He felt like he was going like, to break out into every day is like Sunday. Whereas now there is at least something to work with. And if you're messy... 
if you've grown up there, if you've got an enormous amount of affection for the club, if your family are happy there, you want to be convinced, don't you? Mm-hmm. But um, And maybe, maybe heaven knows he's miserable now. But interesting, <laughs> in, interesting though, that the first person to embrace um, Messi as he came off the pitch against PSG uh, was Pochettino. I'm just throwing that out there. I don't know what was said. Uh, I'm just throwing that out there. But Can I have your shirt? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. But more importantly, Nikki, as, as much as uh, Andy is projecting towards the future of Barcelona, we need to look at the future of PSG in this Champions League. They're the ones that have progressed to the quarterfinals, but they still look somewhat unconvincing not least there were a few from my point of view at least and um, there were a few sort of goal mouth scrambles which uh, fortunately for PSG Barcelona didn't convert that begs a question about their defense amongst other things but yet they've just knocked Barcelona out of the Champions League what why why are people still not quite convinced about their ability to progress and win the tournament? Just to pick up first quickly on that that shirt line, I, I it's a thing that fascinates me slightly, um, just on a human level. When you're that level of superstar, when you're a Messi and likewise a Ronaldo, that feeling it must be when a game hasn't gone your way and then someone does come to ask for your shirt. I saw this just a couple of weeks ago when Verona drew with Juventus. I can't remember who it was anymore. I was trying to check quickly, but someone comes over to ask Ronaldo for his shirt right after the game has finished. And it just looks like it's taking all of his will to still be polite about it, to like not just (laughs) kick off because he can feel another opportunity slipping away in the title race and someone wants, because in the end, like, he is also a footballer. He's a celebrity even within his profession, which is a strange, must be a strange dynamic. But look, I think, Dotton, the answer in terms of PSG, I'm not reading too much into their performance in this one game because I think it's a very specific situation. And I think that being so far in the lead and then that odd scenario that you've got in the back of your mind that we talked about just makes things play differently but it's too soon for this to be Pochettino's team yet it's too soon for to expect Pochettino to have everything just the way he likes it in terms of investment in terms of how they've built that team there's no question that more has gone into the attack than has gone into the defense there's no question that that's the area you look at and think there's some vulnerability but I think, um, I say this every year, the Champions League is a lot about timing. So you still have time now to keep getting those things right because you're still in the competition. And that's really all that matters. Do you believe that they can win it, Andy? I believe that they can. I'm not sure I believe that they will. Um, I think a, a lot depends about the sort of nick that Neymar comes back in. Um, because, of course, normally when he misses the last 16 of the Champions League, Paris Saint-Germain go out. Now, that is a big step forward that they've managed to do without him. As Nicky says, it, by hook or by crook, you know, to, to get through 5-2 on aggregate against Barcelona, there really is no complaining about that, even if there are a few harem scarum moments in, in the second leg. Um, it, it, it's something that 
it was interesting again hearing Pochettino talk about it afterwards where he says it feels like an enormous relief just to get through this bit and so I wonder if this gives him a little bit more freedom and a, a little bit more to play with of course one of the major reliefs will be the fact that he's lent very heavily on Marco Verratti since he's been back and he, he he didn't get he didn't manage to get himself suspended for the for the quarterfinal which is a huge step forward as well Okay, we've talked about two of the highlight matches in this week in the Champions League. You would have thought that these were great adverts for this incredible tournament, uh, world's greatest club tournament. And yet, there are attempts in the offing to, to tinker with this brilliant spectacle. And we, we have to turn back to Turin now, shroud or otherwise, to look at their president, who's at the very centre of trying to mess around with the Champions League. What's going on, Nikki? So Andrea Agnelli, who is, of course, president of Juventus and also president of the European Clubs Association, has uh, revealed some details about the um, what he hopes will soon be an agreed and ratified um, set up for the Champions League going forward, agreed with UEFA. And it foresees an expansion of the number of teams in the Champions League group stage, expanding out to 36 teams. Uh, and... And the um, setup for the group stage would become one giant group in which teams play each other based on a switch ma Swiss matching system, which is a system that, as I understand it, um, basically you start off with some fixtures and then based on the results of those fixtures, the next set of fixtures is drawn so that the way I've seen these used before, you would continue matching the, the stronger teams against one another so that you are being continually sort of risen up against the teams that are performing at the same level as you. It might be the opposite of that. You can use the same system to say, right, now we're seeding. So if you've started well, you get to play the lower teams. I don't know the detail of that yet because those haven't been probably not even reached yet, let alone shared with us. But certainly there's an idea there that you try to balance the schedule in some way based on results as you go along. The idea then would be you get one league table and however many of those teams go on to the knockout stage. That in itself, clearly um, a pretty controversial move that a lot of people won't like, but that was just one of the revelations to come out of Agnelli. He also talked about um, the uh, suggestion, which is not something so we're clear that has been agreed, has been ratified, is currently set up, but the suggestion that he thinks clubs that are in the Champions League should not be able to sell players to each other so that you would be buying players from, in effect, lesser clubs. And um, that way you would stop uh, some of the mad spending. And also the way he tried to sell it was, and this means that the money will filter down. So all the other clubs will be getting the money from the rich clubs. Interesting framing. There were various other um, elements to this as well. Um, there was the suggestion that the calendar he foresees for European football 
basically broadly what he thinks it should look like is teams could play two thirds of their game in domestic competition. One third of the time is devoted to European competition. So this expansion of the Champions League perhaps comes, again, this wasn't explicit, it's not an agreed thing, but the suggestion would be top leagues in Europe either would have to look at reducing the number of teams so you have fewer games in a season, or perhaps also look at reducing the number of uh, extra competitions as well. So he raised the point that the maximum number of games that a team can play in Italy, for instance, is lower than the maximum number of games that a team can play in England. That's because there's more rounds in the FA Cup. And of course, English top flight clubs play the League Cup as well. So a number of different things, um, I'm sure I've forgotten some as well, raised in a fairly provocative conversation, I think, for a lot of people from Agnelli. This sounds like death of the Champions League by a thousand cuts, Andy. And You might need a Swiss army knife to get around the Swiss <laughs> version of what he's proposing. But why, why would anybody do that when the spectacle is what draws us to it? Ultimately, the Champions League is not about the sort of machinations behind the scene. It's about how good the spectacle is on the pitch. Is yeah. there any need to tinker it with, with it? If you're being cynical, Dotton, you would say that it's exactly the, the concern of Juventus because, as, as Nicky said, they've, they've gone out of the, the competition to Dutch, Portuguese and French opposition in, in the past three seasons. And when you've spent that much on Cristiano Ronaldo, when you're paying more wages than almost anyone in football, really, apart from Barcelona, I mean, they're in the kind of NBA bracket of, of wage bills, really, um, Juventus. Um, I, I can understand why they want to pr- protect their investment and and remove that jeopardy to a, to a certain extent. The the timing of it is is absolutely delicious. There's no getting away from it because to say that publicly and then go out of the Champions League to a Portuguese team with a fraction of your budget is well, well it bats for your theory absolutely, Dotton. And um, it exposes that I, th- I think the true feeling behind that. And actually, something that Miguel Delaney, um, our friend, wrote this this week, which said, well, actually, after the Ronaldo experiment has gone the way it has, and clearly they've made sort of a lot of commercial deals that they might not have made otherwise, or they might not have made to the same level if they hadn't had Cristiano Ronaldo off the back of his signing. If you look at the choice to spend that much in transfer fee and wages on someone who's into their 30s to not get you any closer to the Champions League when your avowed aim was for him to push you over the hump. Why are you trusting this guy to shape the future of the, the, well, the Champions League? But I so said this this whole conversation fascinates me actually, Andy. I, I think this um this conversation of more broadly and without wanting to drag us back to the first segment again, has Ronaldo been a failure? We talked about the on-pitch element, but the 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 question of whether Juventus have grown in profile from it is unambiguous. Juventus have internationally blown up their profile. They've done great things for it um, in terms of their marketability internationally by having Ronaldo. You'd have to really get into the reads again to decide whether that's worth the financial cost, which was a lot, but they have gained from it. And would Agnelli 
have this influence if he hadn't signed Ronaldo, if he hadn't reasserted Juventus as we are a leading European team, we want to have a leading European voice. I think that is actually quite a hard question to answer. I think signing Ronaldo was a statement that now everyone else in Europe does have to take us seriously again and does impact these decisions then that get made about who's leading the group and and who's doing things. So it's not as simple as that, even though I understand what Miguel is is, is pulling out on that one. Um, I think there was one other thing which ties into this, which I remembered I did forget to say in that first bit. One other suggestion from Agnelli was that some number of the Champions League qualifying spots, maybe like four, would be retained for teams that haven't necessarily qualified through domestic competition, but have legacy involvement in the Champions League. So teams that are, which really does play to exactly what Miguel is saying. Like this is a a play by someone who's basically trying to look after his own concern that success on the field might not always be sustained. And look, there are competing ideas of how you can run sports. You mentioned the NBA, Andy. American sports is a closed shop at the major league level. Once you're in, you are in. And financially, that means all sorts of certainty for owners, for directors, for investors, and stability for the league. And Agnelli is coming at this from that angle. He's coming at this from his business angle and saying, this is what would be good for business. The problem is that football has a very different history. And I think the other thought that I had listening to this idea about transfers, I think we've framed this a lot in England of, as yes, um, this is really ignorant of football's history, of fandom, of what we expect as consumers of the sport. I think it's also really ignorant of, or perhaps it's either ignorant or deliberately provocative within the player club um, relationship. If you're going to stop players from being transferred between top clubs, we can look at that with astonishment and shock and say this is outrageous manipulation of the competitive field. A footballer looks at that as restraint of trade. I can't move the clubs I want to go to. So that's a hugely provocative um, suggestion for me. But again, I do think Agnelli's ideas are influenced by other sports that do exist and do do these things very differently. Um, and that might be the model that he hopes, and he isn't completely alone. No, I, I, don't, I don't think forward. he is. I don't, I don't think he is, Nicky. Sorry to interrupt. I, I, I just, yeah, I, I feel that the, the pandemic is a handy excuse for it. Mm. Um, and um, I, I think you, you look at it and you, you talked about on-pitch versus off-pitch. And I think that's a huge part of it. It's a question that's been asked... Um, in Germany quite a lot and they've they've talked quite a lot post pandemic about um, how do we change football for the better after this financial setback so understanding that football has to start again without fans which for some is totally unpalatable and a lot of fan groups in Germany have found that completely unpalatable um, for example but clubs have asked like you know this is time to reassess work out where we're vulnerable work out where we can be strong and also and a couple of chairmen have seen i think it was the chairman of augsburg said we need to work out whether we're in the sporting competition business or the entertainment business 
Now, I, th- I think from Agnelli's side, we know exactly where they are. And so much of it is about selling a product. Although I did notice, Dotton, when you talked about the, uh, when Nikki talked about the, um, uh, slots reserved for the historically successful. Were you rubbing your hands and thinking, yeah. Charlton had Alan Simonson <laughs> once. I was not rubbing my hands. Nice try. <laughs> okay. Finally, if you like, after a cracking on the continent and with two uh, incredible matches to talk about that we've talked about, it's going to be difficult, isn't it, to follow that in terms of games of the week. Nevertheless, we ask you both to come up with a game of the week that we can look forward to. It's going to have to be a cracker. Uh, I don't know who wants to go first. Uh, Andy, do you fancy taking that first? What would your game of the week for us to look forward to this weekend be? Easy one. And I think um, regular listeners will be not shocked by what I've gone for. Eight o'clock, Sunday night, southern Spain, Sevilla versus Betis. The greatest derby of them all. It's going to be fantastic. Even though Sevilla went out of the Champions League this week, I thought they actually gave a a pretty good and pretty spiky performance uh, against Dortmund. Um, There's a lot of animosity in that game and I think from Hunan Lopetegui's side, he wanted, wanted to see that fire in their belly after a couple of really... Um, one league performances and the way they went out of Barca- to Barcelona in the Copa del Rey um, semi-final, second leg as well. Um, Betis have come off their own terrific result. They were 2-0 down at Alaves on, um, at home to Alaves on Monday night and the regenerated Borja Valero who looked like the biggest 28 million bust of all time has, has played brilliantly in the last couple of weeks. Him and Joaquin, the legendary 39-year-old Joaquin, it's not all about Zlatan, came on at half-time um, two goals for Borja, uh, one for um, Joaquin, a uh, great header, and uh, they go into the derby on a win. So whereas in recent years, the derby's the derby, but there has been a clear gap between the two sides. Betis will want to feel that they're bridging that gap. And if they can go to Nerbion and get a result, game on. So Sevilla versus Betis, Nicky, that's oranges and lemons. Uh, what's your recommendation for a game of the week? Um, well, without wanting to be predictable, because I always pick an Italian game every time I come on, uh, why take oranges and lemons when you can have reds and backs, reds and blacks against blues? Um Milan against Napoli starts 15 minutes before. So you're going to put that on and then you're not going to change over once you're watching because it's going to be a great game because Milan are still playing for the champions, um, for for the title, I'm sorry. Uh, They're still competing for the title. They are six points behind their city rivals, uh, Inter, right now, but they're not out of the hunt. They're finding resources players down the back of the fridge that they'd forgotten they had, like Krunic and Dallow coming in and, and, and winning the game for them last weekend. They are an incredibly resourceful young team. They've got Fikayo Tamori, who everyone should be getting excited about, playing more and more uh, games at centre-back. I think he's really um, starting to, to blossom in a way that's exciting. And they're playing against the Napoli team that is playing for its Champions League life that is in a really high-intensity pressure moment under Gennaro Gattuso because people don't talk so much about Napoli, but they're spending, I think, the third most on wages this season in Italy and they have 
a heap of talent there, especially attacking talent from Dries Mertens to Lorenzo Insigne to Victor Osimhen finally back from injury and scoring at the weekend. So I think that'll be a great game. Maybe you can have two screens and watch both at the same time. And thank you for not mentioning that uh, Milan was my tip to win the uh, the league as well. And they've dropped off since I, next time. Tell me to shut my big gob and listen to you. <laughs> This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.